Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Campaign Podcast, where we chat about advertising, media, and marketing. I'm your host, Omar Oaks, Campaign's Global Tech Editor. Later in the show, we'll be speaking to David Jones, the founder of You and Mr. Jones, where we'll be speaking about big stuff, the future of agencies, the future of marketing, and how he had a one-on-one with Mark Zuckerberg. And um, we'll be talking a fair bit about Facebook today, I suspect. Um, but first, joining me today is Campaign's news editor, Gurdjit Deegan. Gurdjit, hi, how are you today? Hello, I'm good, I'm good. I'm, I'm happy that the sun is shining, so all good, thank you. Oh, the sun is shining very strongly in London this week, 30, 31 degrees. Um, It's getting too hot in England. It was 37 degrees last year. It's getting ridiculous. Um, But we also have news in the UK about um, pubs and restaurants reopening. Um, Gurdjie, in a previous life, you actually used to write about pubs, didn't you? Are are you excited about all this? I did. I I think I'm, I'm personally, I'm nervous to go back into pubs and and restaurants but I do think good for that industry um they have struggled a lot I mean they've always struggled um but yeah so so good for them but I I don't know I'm not sure a lot of them will be running at what 50 percent 40 percent capacity so um I mean if this is a long-term thing as in like quite a few months I'm quite worried about how many of them are going to survive on that really so Mm. yeah just think about the margins that a lot of restaurants already running at even under good times you just wonder with all the the restrictions that they'll face um how how they're going to mitigate that or price is going to have to go up significantly um but we'll wait and see as with a lot of things we're in uncharted territory um but one thing um the first news story we're going to talk about one new thing that seems to stay constant is facebook and um accusations that it should change its behavior and this comes in the wake of the black lives matter ongoing anti-racism movements and we've had several brands um that have said in recent days that they're going to pull their advertising um temporarily i should say um from the platform um Today, we had Unilever, um, Ben & Jerry's, um, saying they're going to pause their ad spend. Um, in recent days, we've had the North Face, um, Patagonia. Um, we've actually got um, a story about this on our site this morning. We've asked various industry leaders what they think about this. Um, Gurdjieff, what's your sense? Um, this isn't the first time we've had brands say that they want to pause or boycott um, Facebook over various reasons. How much What do you think it's going to be different this time? It, I think it feels different. It feels different because of like the Black Lives Matter movement that has had um, that has been really, really massive um, this time round. Um, and I mean, Black Lives Matter has been going for, on for ages. So there's a feeling that it's different. But the cynic in me feels that these brands, as you say, have done it before. Um, pulling their advertising on Facebook because they're not happy with something that they're doing. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not I'm not too sure really because surely with when Ben and Jerry's Patagonia and Co like they turn back to spend in Facebook again, things will be back to normal. I mean, they'll probably have to do it for quite a while for actually, for actually to have an impact on Facebook's revenue. Do you think it's really difficult because? Um, as as you can see in the piece, a lot of people mention you know Steph Bardega, who um, up until recently led iProspect London. He makes the point that so much of Facebook's client base actually comes from small advertisers, and you know even if 
we, even if Unilever, all of their brands decided to pull out of Facebook, mm. you know, as, as you say, Gurdjieff, is it really going to affect their bottom line that much? Now, the reputational impact, that's a different story. And mm. it's this kind of thing where if users start to come off Facebook, plus brands start to come off Facebook, and it has that kind of downward spiral effect, and I guess it could affect real change. Um, but it's it's interesting. I mean, and what you know, then it's an uh, issue. So then then I feel bad <laughs> for the small businesses because a lot of them can't advertise. Well, they can advertise elsewhere, but I mean, um, Facebook. Is a, is a big platform for them to advertise yeah. on and to yeah. kind of reach for like bigger audiences. They can't always afford to do like the big ads that the Unilever brands can. So those Unilever brands can afford to come off Facebook um, for good if they want to, which but I don't think they will. Um, and But they'll still continue to kind of build their brand in different ways. But, yeah, then then it's an issue if it's if impacting small businesses on like our economy, I think. It's a bigger, bigger, <laughs> bigger yeah. issue there. I think I think that's absolutely right. And the thing is, if you've got a platform, as they call it, or if you've got, um, well, we should. I was going to use the word utility. I mean, that's what it is. It's a utility. Facebook is becoming for a lot of businesses, mm. where just in the same way that you need a road to drive your car, you need Facebook to advertise. Um, and, and it's great that we've had this private company that's been able to innovate and create this amazing platform for businesses. But at the end of the day, if it's something which is considered a public good, then it needs to be regulated like a public good. And I think you know, it's it's a long time coming that we've needed to have this conversation as a society. And I. You know, it's it's all well and good for individual brands to make a decision, but there really needs to be, I think, serious conversations about regulating um, yeah. Facebook yeah. in this matter. Um, no, and it, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so it it's it's a big issue. It's it's not going to go away. Also, big week, not just because of pubs and restaurants reopening, but also Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, um, saying that cinemas are going to reopen as well. Um, Gurdjie, are you going to be racing back to the cinema? Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm quite nervous um, about uh, the, the, the government kind of moving too quickly on this. Um, but I do think it is it's absolutely great news for cinemas um, to, to reopen. You know, hopefully the ad spend will start rising and um you know the industry will start to see some some benefits of of these places reopening i would love to go to the cinema but like i said i am quite nervous about it um i don't know what about you um i well i've got um a little baby on the way so <sighs> come next month i'm gonna be on super lockdown i'm not gonna be doing <laughs> I'm not going to be going anywhere for various for several weeks. Um, I, I do really miss the cinema. I, you know, I used to try and go as much as I could. I, I, I love get. I absolutely love seeing, especially big budget kind of blockbuster films. It's just not the same on your TV. Um, um, listeners, you should check out Catherine Jacobs' piece. Um, she says that we're actually going to value cinema experiences even more after the lockdown because we missed it so much. Um, she says, one of my favourite feelings is a sense of anticipation you get in the cinema when the lights go down, the popcorn rustling, the whole room holding its breath before the film starts. And I think, you know, I completely agree with that to an extent, but it speaks to this, this and I think it's, it's a point for retail as well, this 
if if a cinema becomes this enhanced experience because you know TVs are getting better, there's more content on Netflix and the like now, at home nowadays. But if cinemas really can be that enhanced experience, it's actually worth going out and paying your money for. I definitely think they they'll still have a bright future, even if it's a bit more niche. I suppose. I mean, Gojek, you know the experiential yeah. sector really well. Do you, do you think that's right? I totally agree. Yeah, um, I do think when cinemas start reopening, like the good ones will. They'll make more of an experience of it. Um, they'll like, I, I mean, I love that how Selfridges did the whole kind of, um, you're going to be queuing quite a while, but hey, hey, here's some entertainment while you queue. And that's great. And that totally would kind of encourage people to to pop by. I mean, why not? Um, in, in cinemas, uh, you go, you're right. You, and, and Catherine's right. You go for the experience that, um you know to have to have some like I love the salty popcorn and you know to sit like comfortable in the in in the dark and just like watch this massive screen with this surround sound it's absolutely brilliant there'll be cues so why not put something else on you know around the foyer or something or um it'll be fun yeah you know if, if they do something like that it will be fun but um and I think yeah and I think you and and Catherine's right that definitely people will be kind of looking to go back to to the cinema experience yeah um industry obviously keen for cinemas to reopen and for customers to return um the reopening of uk cinemas due for 4th of july uh, just a reminder about some numbers we had through in april um from the ad association forecast for the rest of the year uh cinema had spend down 100 percent for the second quarter of 2020 down 40% for the third quarter of 2020, which we're just about to go into. Um, they think that um, it, even when we get to Q4 um, towards Christmas time, it's only going to go up by 2%. And so that 33% down cinema advertising is forecast um, for the end of the year. Um, and they say that it's likely to, they, they forecast it to go up for by 40% in 2021. But, you know, um, do the maths on that. It's still kind of down over the two years. Um, so just like many sectors of this economy and this industry, um, COVID is having a real impact. Um, and of course, <laughs> it's had an impact on events and awards as well. And guess what? It was supposed to be Can Lions this week, and it still is to an extent, but we're not on the Quasette Gurgit. What would you be doing right now? Is it it's Wednesday morning we're recording this. What would you be doing? Wednesday morning. Hmm. Um, it's about 11 o'clock. So I'd probably be either finishing or going to a session at the Palais. Um, I would be looking forward to the campaign party. Um, yeah, that's and, always on a Wednesday night, yeah. Yeah, which is always really good. And I would, um, I don't know, I would probably be rushing over to the campaign tent for free lunch (laughs) 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 not because we're incredibly tight listener even though we are um but it's just that you're you're you're, you are running around so much there's so much news to cover and so many meetings that you're having um packed into this one week that you just often don't get time to um to eat and you just kind of like you look for the nearest um 
<laughs> tray of canapes or whatever has been left lying out at some yeah. event that's just happened. Um, I, I'm not painting a very good picture, but, you know, that's, that's the glamorous life that we lead as uh, advertising industry life. journalists. Yeah. We're um, running down the closet sweating and then finding some canapes to chuff in our mouths. Yeah. Um, one piece of news that came out was um, Adam and Eve DDB was named Europe's top agency of the decade. Um, also, um, campaigns, agency of the decade. Uh, just saying. Um, Adam and Eve obviously was founded in 2009, made with DDB in 2012. And you, listeners will know um, they've done lots of great work for John Lewis, lots of great Christmas ads, Harvey Nichols, etc. Um, Abbott Mead Vickers, BBDO, also on the commas in second place and third in Europe, went to Ogilvy Paris. Um, so some good news. Obviously, we don't have any um, awards like we normally do at Cannes this week. Um, is there anything else that's caught your eye? We've had these virtual um, talks that they've done, Lions Live. Uh, has anything caught your eye? Have they, have they done okay? Um, well, I haven't. I haven't actually um, tuned into any of them yet. But I'm looking forward to um, hearing from um, Procter and Gamble's um, Mark Pritchard uh, later today, um, and. Uh, our journalist um, Simon Gwynn has got an interview booked with him as well for a bit later. Um, so yeah, I'm hearing. I'm looking forward to hear. Always looking forward to hear what the um, what these guys have to say. Um, yeah. So yeah. we'll see. What about you? Did you you tuned into some CMO sessions? Um, yes. Um, on Monday, I was quite interested in what was happening, so I flicked through um, some of the presentations. Some were okay, some live Q&A stuff. Um, there was a session with Peter Field, which was quite good, um, kind of banging the drum for how brands should um, keep up um, brand building despite the pandemic. Um, quite important. If you've not listened to that, you should. Um, other stuff, not so good. I mean, I listened to Facebook's um, kind of talking about mm. um, recent activity, and, you know, it was... Um, um, you know, it was just a pre-recorded thing where they were talking about their recent brand activity, which wasn't, you know, there weren't any questions, for example. Um, and you kind of, you really want Q&A in that sort of format. So that was a little bit disappointing, but, you know, they're, they're doing the best that they can, as, as we all are, um, he says, recording podcasts from his living room. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, we're, we're obviously very keen for Canon to return next year. Um, I actually, yeah, I, I covered the Mark Pritchard section session last year um, oh, for yeah. campaign and I was I was this close to John Legend <laughs> um, who was in that session as well and you know he, he kind of did a little song was on the panel with Mark Pritchard and then he came into the press room and it was like oh my god it's John Legend and I took pictures <laughs> I of him and I was, I was sending it to everyone I knew and it's, um, oh, that's probably is that the most famous person I've been that close to I think it might be actually um, but yeah um, that was good for me so I doubt Cam, I doubt um, Simon will have as um, illustrious a meeting with Mark over Zoom today, but we'll see. Um, okay, um, that's it for the news right now. Um, I'm going to throw it to our interview with David Jones. And when we come back, Gert and I will look at some of the most recent ads. So I'm here today with David Jones, the founder of You and Mr. Jones, which says it is the world's first global brand tech group. Uh, it's a company that includes businesses that people in advertising should be familiar with, like Gravity Road and MoFilm, as well as Oliver, the in-housing specialist it took a majority stake in last year. 
And before founding you and Mr. Jones, about five years ago, he was for many years in charge of Havas and the ad agency Havas Worldwide, having become a CEO in Australia, Euro RICG, I believe, at the tender age of 32, uh, which is quite a bit younger than I am now. Uh, so, David, um, pleasure to have you on the podcast. Where does lockdown find you? Hey, Omar, great to great to join you. Um, so, I home for the last uh, almost twenty years have been New York, but I, you currently find me in Costa Rica. When they close Costa Rica, wow! When they close, the- have you have you got a new business meeting there? Uh, yeah, well, no, but I'm I am going to be opening up our Costa Rican office. Um, but no, this, seriously, when they closed the kids' schools, we decided to sort of get out of of New York because it was a fairly tough time with COVID and we we came down here um, and, have, and have been here for a few weeks, but heading back to New York shortly. Oh, wow. I wasn't expecting to say that. Um, very salubrious surroundings. Um, and um, explain to us uh, the name you and Mr. Jones. Um, how did you come up with that? Obviously not the Mr. Jones bit, which I can <laughs> guess, but uh, <laughs> what's you and Mr. Jones about? Um, so, so, you know, somewhere between the sort of the naming conventions of a technology group and the naming conventions of a, of a brand and advertising group. Um, I wanted to find something that was uh, an interesting hybrid because we're obviously a technology group, but we also do a lot of, of our work in and around the branding and advertising space. And I think, you know, uh, tech companies tend to have strange names that often use um, odd, odd letter spellings because the name they wanted wasn't available. And uh, <laughs> advertising groups tend to kind of call themselves after the name of the founders. Um, and so the idea here was, you know, obviously uh, Jones is an incredibly common surname. So Mr. Jones is a nod to me, but it's not like calling it the David Jones group. Uh, secondly, the you, that, uh, or probably even most importantly, the you always comes first. So you, whether you are a client, an, an employee, an investor, you always come first. And then the ampersand just comes from a belief that open collaborative models will always be closed models. And that no matter who you are today, um, you know, most of the best talent works for someone else, even if you're someone like Apple or Amazon and technology moves so fast that there's no way you can be at the cutting edge of owning it all. Um, and so the critical importance of open models and collaboration, which was summed up by the ampersand. And if you put all of that together, you get to you and Mr. Jones, which also was a, a kind of fun nod to various different songs across the years. Indeed. All right. Um, so how is COVID and the pandemic and the lockdowns, etc., how has it affected you and Mr. Jones? When, when disruptive change like uh, this happens, like COVID happens, what it tends to do is it doesn't create new change, it accelerates the existing change. And so we've seen a huge acceleration of, of the shift to everything we do, which is always on digital and social content, e-commerce. Um, so it's actually been, you know, we, our organic growth for quarter one was 37.2%. Um, and we will have strong double digit growth for the year. So it's kind of, it's just accelerated the shift to what we do. I mean, to be clear, you know, when, when we created the company, we called ourselves a brand tech group. What's brand tech? We, we believe that everyone will understand the brand tech category in the same way as, you know, people understand fintech or biotech but it's just using technology to do marketing better, faster, Mm -hmm. and cheaper. Um, And that has become even more relevant and even more critically uh, important. So net-net, I think this accelerates the move to new content models. 
I will never do anything. Often people say, hey, you're a traditional ad agency. And it's like, or a new model ad agency. It's like, no, we, we think you can no, no more reinvent the ad agency model than you can reinvent, you know, photographic film or CD-ROMs or fixed line telephony. Um, but we think, you know, using technology to, to deliver always on mobile, digital, social and e-commerce content um, is a huge new category. And that's the one we're focused in. So we not we don't have any businesses that do traditional ads or traditional media. So we're very much protected from um, all of the negative impact that that has been. And it's interesting because um, when you launched, um, you described yourselves um, um, as the first global brand tech group, as it was called brand tech. Um, and now the ecosystem, uh, or rather the ad land landscape looks quite different now because as we speak today martin sorrell has launched s4 capital which is supposed to be a, a different kind of company offering marketing communication services the consultancies the accentures and deloits of the world um are now in the adland space as well um i guess my question is are you finding it tougher than it was before with these new competitors no because they because to be honest they're not really competitors in the sense that um you know, if you look at the amount of dollar spend that is still in in the traditional old world legacy businesses, it's absolutely huge. Um, and I think what we are all doing is we're creating a new category. So, you know, people often um, find it odd when I say, look, I want S4 to do really well and I hope Sorrel's successful. And I'm like, what? You should... And it's like, cause, you know, we, we what what we are all doing is creating this new category. And, and whether, you know, what it, what it ends up being called, we'll see our term for it, is brand tech. Um, and so, you know, the I think what you have seen is that the world's biggest brands and advertisers have become desperately frustrated with the limitations of the big traditional holding companies. And they they became, this was my whole reason for, for leaving Havas to, to set um, up your Mr. Jones, is I could just see that all the big clients were really frustrated and wanted a new model. Um, and what has been lacking to date is the ability to deliver at scale. So it's easy to, to for, the, for the, the global brands. It's easy to create a small company in one city that works on five brands and you'll do very well because clients need smart new model thinking. Um, but, you know, it's, le- it's much less easy to be able to work on 300 brands globally. And unless you can do that, you're as much part of the problem as you are part of the solution. So the reason when I launched the company, I, I raised $300 million was because I wanted to build it at scale. And, you know, within uh, a, a pretty short space of time, within a few years, we've become Unilever's largest global digital content partner. And, you know, they, they've said that publicly. We work on, you know, uh, over 350 brands for them globally. And, and we've been able to do that from kind of scratch. And I think that just... So, so, sorry, just to be clear, David. So you did that from scratch because um, we'll get on to Oliver in a bit, but um, you took a majority stake in Oliver and they they, they, cre- they created what was called U-Studio for Unilever. They were already working with them. But you saying that even before that, you were working a lot with Unilever. Yes, absolutely. So Unilever were our biggest client uh, before we acquired Oliver. Um, right. And if, you know, I think... Uh, you, you know, the, um, Oliver started working with Unilever back in 2016, and we started working with Unilever in 2016. So, you know, let, let's say in the last four years, you know, collectively we have 
we've become their largest digital uh, content partner globally. Um, yeah. And I think what that says is, num- you know, is, is that if you can do it at mass scale, brands really want that because this, you know, they really need, if you like, I think Gartner said that content would be the single biggest bottleneck in marketing this decade. And the, the whole reason for setting up the company was like the mobile phone came along and it totally disrupted all marketing. It created enormous new channels that brands needed to produce content for. It created, you know, enormous numbers of new formats. So the actual amount of content you needed a, a, as a brand was like 100x. You then add to that, you had access to unprecedented levels of data. And then even more significantly, you know, every single person on the planet became a content creator. And, you know, mm. the marketing director who'd sort of perfected the traditional marketing playbook was sitting there going, shit, we need help. The problem is we go see the big agency groups and whilst they get brand, they really don't get tech, nor do they want to. And we go to the tech platforms and, and they're great, but, they, you know, they'll only ever recommend their tech platform and, and we need somebody objective and who gets brand. And so our idea was very simply, let's build the first company in the world that is both an expert in technology and an expert in brand. Just thinking about the position you're in when you were running Havas for many years, um, you, you'll have seen kind of, you know, it was apparent even 10 years ago with the advent of mobile where the industry was going. Um, what When you were in charge of Havas, you know, just paint a picture of what it was like, you know, what, what are the challenges that hold them back in terms of transforming? How difficult is it for a CEO to do that? So, look, I mean, I think um, it's kind of impossible um, But to put a bit of context on that. Um, there's actually a best-selling Harvard Business School case study called Have Us Change Faster. And what it does is it, it goes through um, what I was trying to do uh, to change Have Us and make it um, – you know, digitally literate and technology savvy. And spoiler alert, it doesn't end with me turning Havas into a more valuable business uh, than Google. Um, but uh, you know, I, seriously, it, you know, they they came in and they talked to all our senior execs and they came to our meetings and they put together a really interesting uh, case study on it. But, you know, I think the case study is, um, as much as anything is about the structural decline of an industry. Now, my, you know, my timing uh, has always been very lucky and uh, I, I saw that things were not going to go well. So, you know, I left. Um, but when I left uh, the industry, I mean, the big holding companies were still growing, uh, you know, on, under every quarter than I ran Havas, we grew top and bottom line. Um, and I think, you know, not just Havas, but if you look at the last three, four years, most of the holding companies have been in decline, you know, some or all of those years or at best flat. Um, so it's become a declining industry. And, and, you can sit there and sort of go, but hey, it should be really easy to to not make that the case. And you could even you could even say, and looking at what we're doing and what S4 are doing, you know, how I mean, Sora was obviously running a bigger company than I was with WPP, but you could say, like, what did what did we not know then that we know now? Because both of us are running businesses that are growing incredibly fast. And the answer is nothing. Um, it's just incredibly hard to change big traditional legacy businesses. And if you look at, in history, it's never happened. And in fact, the guy who oversaw the case, the Havas case, Professor Mike Tushman at, at Harvard, was the kind of the key lecturer on, on disruption. And he sort of said, look, you know, you've, you've pretty much never seen a business that has been able to reinvent itself when disruption hits. I mean, look at Kodak, you know, they should be, they should own today, um, 
Instagram and TikTok and drone businesses and all these kind of things. And in actual fact, you know, they, they don't exist. Um, so I, I don't think they can. I think you basically have a core business that makes your money doing something that if you set out to disrupt that, you basically just accelerate the decline of your business business dramatically. Um, and so I, I, you know, now that said, I don't think any of them disappear overnight. Um, you know, they, they're still businesses that throw off a lot of cash and that make sense as a private business. Um, but as a public listed company, they're no longer growing and that's what the markets reward. So they're just going to continue to decline. And, you know, Morgan Stanley put out some numbers recently said that said that 50 billion has come off the market cap of of the big traditional holding companies in the last five years. And I think, you know, because of that, they're finding it increasingly hard to attract the top talent. They don't have the tech expertise that's needed. And clients just don't want to work with them anymore. Um, Other than that, you are looking quite good. Um, but I, I should I, <laughs> I should hasten to point out, you know, what I'm really talking about is is the big traditional global and particularly the big traditional global creative agencies. Um, I think for small, brilliant creative shops, you know, the likes of the the Widens or the Johannes Leonardos or the Drogas, I think they have a very bright future because brilliant ideas are, are more. Uh, important than ever, but you need you know four or five hundred people to do that, not forty or fifty thousand. And um, you mentioned um, some of these disruptive um, brands such as Instagram and TikTok, um, and it's actually a really good time to talk to you because um, we, we're speaking just days after this um, brand boycott um, that a number of um, companies have done this week. Um, We've got a question on our site today as we're speaking uh, where we're asking, do brands have the power to affect change on tech giants, namely Facebook? Um, You actually know Mark Zuckerberg, don't you? Um, Do you think he's going to be losing sleep over Patagonia and the North Face pausing their ad spend on Facebook? Yeah, I mean, I was a a founder member of the the Facebook client council that they set up about a decade ago, and I I sat on that for four years and uh, even keynoted their annual meeting one year and had a one-on-one meeting with him on purpose. And, and, you know, I... Wow. What was that like? um, Look, it was really interesting. Uh, And here's my take on Facebook. I mean, I I think it is a... You know, I I am not um, as anti-Facebook as as many people. You know, I think they are um, accidentally doing really bad and stupid stuff rather than deliberately doing it. And you, you may argue that, um, that, you know, that doesn't really matter if you're still doing it. But I think, you know, I think it just comes from a place of not really understanding the impact and reverberations of the decisions you make um, from having strong views on things about what you should and, and shouldn't as a platform be doing. But, you know, I think what they need to do is understand that those views are wrong um and that you know facebook could be the most powerful force for good in the world um at the moment there are many people who think it is the largest force for bad in the world and i think what they need to do is acknowledge that and just change many of their decisions and i think it's interesting you know when you you look at twitter's journey and obviously they're a smaller scale but 
you know, their, their initial standpoint was, look, hey, we just facilitate the world's conversation. It's not for us to get involved in it. And then they've realized that if you actually don't get involved in it, bad things can happen. And they've, you know, put an even more, you know, extreme and precise layer on that in terms of flagging uh, false tweets and banning people from the platform who are inciting, uh, you know, racism and violence. And it's to be commended. Um, and I think, you know, what Facebook need to, to understand is, uh, and, and in fact, when I when I keynoted their, uh, their meeting, it was 2013, I had a slide of me holding my my son dressed in his little Spider-Man uniform, I think he was about three at the time, and, I, and the words just said, with great power comes great responsibility. And I think they have great power and there's a great responsibility. And whilst, you know, you could argue that two or three brands boycotting them Um, may not actually impact their annual revenue that massively. The kind of brands who are doing it, you know, most people would view Patagonia as one of the the most ethical and reputable companies out there. And the fact that companies like that are doing it, it's going to have a real impact. So let's hope that they kind of listen and act uh, and understand that you can't sit on the sidelines in these things um, because you sort of, you know, people will interpret your lack of action or your action that is negative um, in, a, in a very bad way. I'm fascinated to know what having a conversation with Mark Zuckerberg about purpose would be like. And, and Mark, you're welcome to come on the campaign podcast at any time. And, you know, your people at Facebook have my number. Um, but the, the impression from the outside is that he just doesn't really care. He, you know, he, he has been very um, adamant about Facebook is not a media publisher, as he says. They they're a neutral platform, as he says. And if people want to um, lie and spread misinformation, particularly politicians, then it's up for users to be able to see that stuff and you know see people for what they really are. So so I'm fascinated to see if you are having a discussion about brand purpose. How receptive would he have been to that? So I think what you have to realize is this is you know almost a decade ago. Um, and so Facebook was still a, you know, a relatively small company. Many people thought that they wouldn't be successful and they didn't have a business model. So it's a very different time to have that conversation than today. And, and um, my personal view, and I don't know him well, um, so I wouldn't want to pretend that I, I do, but my, my personal view is just that a lot of this comes from his beliefs. Um, but I think those beliefs are, are not in keeping with where the world is today. Um, if you look at his actions, I mean, he literally has given away, you know, over 90%. Of, so if you look at people like um, Bill Gates, you know, and, and Buffett and people like that, they waited to the end of their lives until they gave away the vast majority of, of, uh, of wealth they'd created. He like set up the the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation pledged something like 95, 99% of all his equity to it. If you look at all the work they did with internet.org, if you look at, you know, what Cheryl's doing with Lean In, it, it's not that they're not actually purpose-driven. It's just that they have, a, in my view, a specific set of beliefs about their role, which I think is just totally flawed. Um, and I think rather than sort of trying to be neutral and say, no, we just have this thing and people can do what they want on it. You need to say, actually, we can be an amazing force for good in the world. And I think if they do that, they will have a very successful future. And I think if they don't do that, you will see them go the way of Yahoo and you know, AOL and, and all the other big you know, tech platforms that once were massive and that we no longer talk about anymore. 
Um, and so I, I think it's gone from, I would argue that maybe, you know, seven, eight years ago, there was a real opportunity and purpose to be a huge force for good in the world. I would say that now it is their lifeline. And that if they don't act and they don't set out to be uh, both a significant force for good in the world and also to stop, uh, you know, being a force for bad in the world, that, you know, when we talk 10 years from now, um, we won't be talking about Facebook. A lot of their client base comes from what you call the long tail. Um, I think it's as much as 85% nowadays um, are kind of small and medium-sized enterprises that um, spend money on Facebook advertising. Even if it's a Unilever, one of your clients, even if Unilever turned around tomorrow and said, we're going to pause our ad spend on Facebook indefinitely for the rest of the year, right? Which would be a big deal. Even if that happened, isn't Facebook's client base so diverse and long taily nowadays that it doesn't really matter what these brands do because you're not going to get, you know, your local business where it's the only place to advertise in the local area because it's so cost effective because the targeting is so good. And by the way, they're the only game in town with that kind of reach. Isn't it a fact that Facebook, you know, they don't need to bat an eyelid? No, sure. That was the point I was making in terms of, you know, even if the impact of all of the brands boycotting Facebook doesn't actually hit their numbers that much. But I, I don't think anybody has successfully built a sustainable business um, where they are viewed to be a negative impact on the world. Um, you know, it might work for three years, five years, two years, you know, so it, it might not have any impact in uh in uh, 2020, but it's certainly going to start having a big impact over time. Um, and the the real danger within that is, you know, Facebook is an incredibly effective place to spill to still spend a dollar of advertising. Um, you know, if you if you include Instagram within that, um, but there's a point in time where you know enough people believe that they just don't want to be on this platform, and people start leaving the platform critically. Um, and that will lead to a bad place. So I don't think, you know, I don't think this is one way you can ignore it and say it doesn't matter what what are a few um, clients, you know, leaving the ship, uh, because I think that it can very quickly over time lead to a desertion, um, and then that's very, very hard to ever come back from. Mm. Okay, uh, let's get to Oliver, which you mentioned. Um you took a majority stake in Oliver, I think, at the beginning of 2019. Um, it's been more than a year now. Um, what's happened since? Uh, what's changed post-acquisition? Um, not a lot, really. I mean, I think our, mo- our model is very simply to say, um, you know, we think for brilliant entrepreneurs, um, it, their choices are complex because either they take sort of private equity to fund expansion and growth, but... Um, it doesn't come with any strategic added value on the whole and really only cares about exit multiples. Or on the other side, they do a big strategic deal with an Accenture or an IBM or someone like that, um, or a WPP, in which case, you know, uh, they suddenly become an absolute rounding error on a rounding error uh, in a giant company that often isn't what they thought they were getting into. And so our model is to say, look, we can add all of the strategic help uh, that that uh, a big strategic player can by helping them expand globally, by opening the door to uh, you know more bigger clients, and by helping with operational expertise, but that they can continue very much to run their business as the entrepreneurs they are. So our model is typically we acquire fifty one percent of the business, 
but leave you know 49 or roughly half of the business in the hands of the entrepreneurs. So um, that that's sort of the model. And I think Oliver has been another example of it working incredibly successfully. Um, you know, they're doing absolutely brilliantly. I think if you ask them, they would say that we've delivered everything that we said that we would. And if you ask me, I would say they've delivered everything that they said they, they would. And it's, it's going phenomenally well. Um, they're growing extremely strongly. They have a very unique offer in that they're the only company in the world that has focused for a, a decade on building in-house operating systems for brands. And they have a, a technology platform process and people that does that. Um, and obviously in-housing has subsequently become quite fashionable. So they're obviously sitting at the, the heart of that, but they're just in a league of their own in their ability to, to do it and, and to deliver it. So um, it's going very well. And the success of a company like that that specialises in in housing, um, what do you think the long term prognosis is for um, agencies as we know them? Um, do you see the future of marketing being about, you know, essentially um, agencies, people that work in agencies become consultants or coaches for marketers, and the marketers are the ones who end up commissioning and creating their own assets whatever their marketing communications is um, rather than having this specialization of uh, creative and strategic labor we have today so i think i mean i think the future of marketing is going to be more and more technology more and more process and less and less people um and i think if you want an analog um i mean look look, look say just just compare the cmo to the cfo if a CFO joined a company tomorrow and sort of said, hey, I've got my own auditors, so I'm bringing them in, and I don't like your financial accounting software, I have my own one of those, you know, they'd last about two minutes. And marketing today is still very much that. A new CMO comes in, they don't like the agency partners that are there, they change them. They don't like the tech stack that's in place, they bring in their own. And, you know, potentially... Um, they last a couple of years, which I think is the average tenure of a CMO. And then the next one comes in and does it again. And, and I think there's a very interesting analogy in what Salesforce have built as a business is, um, you know, sales was very similar to where marketing is today. You know, everybody had their own thing. There wasn't really any process or technology around it. Um, and you've seen Salesforce build a, you know, 150 billion valuation business. Um SaaS model business using technology to help people organize their sales process. Now, my, my belief is not that marketing will ever be as standardized as sales, um, but I think somewhere between the almost total free-for-all it is today and a lot more technology systems, process, and SaaS models, you know, there's a very valuable business to be created that delivers brilliantly for its brands and clients and delivers brilliantly for its shareholders. And if you, if you sort of say on the one hand, you have the big traditional holding companies that are worth 15 billion. And on the other hand, you have a sales force that's worth 150 billion. You know, we think we can build something that sits somewhere between those two. Mm, interesting. And how, how quickly, I mean, COVID, as we said at the top of the conversation, is the great accelerator. Um, do you think that it's, where do you think we're going to be this time next year when we're in a so-called new normal phase? So I'm not sure we'll be new normal this time next year. I mean, I, my belief is that uh, 2021 is going to be a, a tough year uh, for 
for you know the world's economy and for brands. I'm, I don't subscribe to the sort of V-shaped, all bounces back in quarter four. Um, and I think where where will we, where are we? Well, I mean, if you look at it, you know, for me, um, phase one, if you like, of this has been, and, and my number was 20 billion, and then I saw the Morgan Stanley stats that said sort of 50 billion. You know, phase, phase one has been 50 billion off the market cap of the big traditional groups. I think phase two is 50 billion in value being created by the new players. And so far, you know, we were the, the first new player to go past a billion dollar valuation when we raised at a 1.3 billion valuation. You know, S4 fairly shortly after that went past a, a billion dollars in valuation. So you've kind of got two new companies who are nudging up together on a three billion valuation. You have lots of other people now starting to very seriously look at the space. And I think you're going to see, you know, you're going to see five or 10 groups um, that are that are worth 20, 30 billion five years from now, um, of which, you know, we will be one, S4 will be one, there will be many more. And in fact, when, you know, when I raised the original money for the business, I said to our potential investors, you know, we... We don't think we have an idea that no one else can have, and, and we're not trying to tell you there will be one. There will be one giant company that does all of this. There's going to be 10 players in this new category. We just think we can build a very successful one, and that is still our belief. I would I would be lying if I said that I was not surprised. Well, I was surprised um, when uh, the head of WPP left to create one. I, I, that wasn't we we hadn't put that down in our sort of what we thought we'd have. <laughs> we were convinced that there were going to be 10 groups like ours because when there is a massive, massive demand for something, you know, people are going to fulfill that demand. And there was a massive demand on the, the part of the world's biggest brands for help creating the enormous volume of content that they needed for, for digital, social, mobile, you know, better, faster and cheaper. And to do that using technology, not people. Hmm. Okay, and of course, uh, final question is: It was supposed to be Can Lions this week. Um, are you? Would you be in Can this week if it wasn't for the pandemic wrecking everything? What would you be doing right now? Yeah, no, I we, I would have been in Can. I mean, I think the reason to go to Can is less because of what it is and more because everyone's there, um, and so it is still a very effective way of, um, you know meeting a, a lot of key clients, uh, seeing the tech platforms, talking to acquisition targets, talking to talent, um, and, and you sort of have a lot of people in one place. I think the challenge for Can is that their business model was sort of built on, um, you know, agencies entering awards. And we, you know, sort of phase one worked well when clients got into awards and started going to Cannes and saying awards are important. But phase two and three have been all the management consultants going to Cannes and now all the tech platforms going to Cannes. And as you know, if you look down the Quasette, all of the huge installations, it's Google, Facebook, Pinterest, Spotify. It's none of the, the ad agency groups and none of the tech platforms and none of the management consultants are entering awards. So I think the real question that can is going to have to ask itself pre-COVID is what's the model and is this sustainable? And post-COVID is going to be, is anyone going to go? You know, are people going to go to Can in June 2021 or have we all just learned that you don't need to do that? And I think that's going to be very telling. Mm, we shall see. Um, 
thank you, David Jones, for joining us on the Campaign Podcast. I'm going to let you get back to uh, uh, whatever fun you're having in Costa Rica. Yes, not that much because they sort of uh, closed all the beaches and uh, the curfews in place, but that's the reason they have so few cases. Nevertheless, uh, thanks for coming on and stay safe. Thanks. Take care, Omar. Bye-bye. And we're back. Um, Gurdjit Deegan looking at this week's ads. Um, MoneySupermarket.com. Uh, this is interesting. They've created a new mascot. It's a bull. And they're using it to illustrate how the brands can help people stay calm when faced with the impending doom of bills. A bull in a china shop? He should be going berserk. Um, this one is by Engine, um, the ad agency. What do you think of this, Gurdjieff? I really like it. Um, yeah. I just thought, when I saw it on TV. Um, I've had a, a weekend off, um, like a long weekend off, and uh, it popped up on TV. And um, I, was, I just thought, oh, thank God. Thank you. Like, they've actually done so, a, a decent ad for this because I, I was, really wasn't a fan of the uh, of the first um first work that they had done um it was really like, um, I, thought, I, th- I thought you loved everything to do with matt berry who does the voiceover i, I thought you loved it <laughs> i do i do and i feel bad for you know saying that with like matt berry being involved but i mean come on comedians can get it wrong um but yeah i it was just i yeah his voiceover was great but um it was it was really weird. It was just all those, you know, it just made me feel a bit dizzy and I really didn't like it. Um, but this is um this is a really good ad. Um and the voiceover with Matt Berry really works. Um and yeah, the, the bull in a china shop and that that bull just like everywhere in the most kind of stressful situations just looking all cool and, and chilled out. Um I really like it. I really like it. They're on a real kick with the animal. So they've got a bull in this one, the money calm bull. And before they had a sleuth, sloth, uh, a, sorry, a sleuth of bears, not a sloth of bears, a sleuth of bears. That's the proper collective noun. And then before that, um, there was a goat who was in a jacuzzi. Um, so uh, everyone loves cute animals. Um, <laughs> well, I, think this, I think this bull one is, is pretty good um, out of out of all of them i quite like it so um i know I, I like the way they play on the, the bull in the china shop thing um it's good i think it's really good mm. um one of the other things i think it was it supposed to be this week or next week and um, we were supposed to have the wimbledon tennis tournament and i actually live not so far away from the all england lawn tennis association me too um, Oh uh, yeah, you live in Ellsford, not so far away. I live yeah. in Wimbledon Park, um, and um, the, despite not having the tournament, and they've produced some advertising. Um, I guess they they already spent the money, so you might as well. Do something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I just, I just, no. Um, yeah. It's it's for the Lawn Tennis Association. It's by their agency, the Anne Partnership London, and so they've launched this campaign, which encourages people from all walks of life to pick up a racket, a racket this summer, um, even if they aren't particularly good at tennis. Hey. If you're going to hit it out, then hit it out. Proper out. Who cares? That ball doesn't. Do you think, um, I mean, this is something that Wimbledon has done before where they're trying to promote people to do sports. But do you think just having the lack of that obvious tent pole that, you know, obviously we're not having Wimbledon on um, mm. the BBC right now. Do you think it's going to have the same impact? 
Uh, I haven't seen this on TV yet, actually. Um, and so I do, I've been watching a lot of TV lately. Um, so I had a look at it on our website last night. Um, I really like it. I think, I think what they've tapped into here is, um, people in lockdown and, uh, playing tennis, um, pretty badly. Um, <laughs> like, cause that's the only thing they can do. So when I can't remember when the tennis courts reopened, um, it's, it's a good few weeks now and everyone was like on the courts just playing rubbish tennis just because they could, you know, it was something to do. Um, and so I think they've really tapped into that. Um, and I, th- I think it's great. And, um, another comedian I like is Gus Khan and they've got him as in, on the voiceover and I think that works really well too um, although he is everywhere okay but um, I really like him uh, yeah no I, I think this is great because um, although Wimbledon is not happening which usually I expect gets people in the mood for um, going down to their local tennis uh, courts I think uh people are down there anyway at the moment and uh these guys have just kind of tapped into into that you know just pick up a racket and uh hit the ball and see what happens <laughs> and that is what is happening in my local parks yeah and as part of this kind of i guess long-term brand repositioning that they're trying to do where tennis traditionally is and Wimbledon does promote this as well with everyone wearing white and you've got kind of the royal box and all this guff you know it's this image yeah. of tennis as a very privileged elite sport which you know it is you have to be a pretty rich so-and-so to get tennis lessons from the age of four um yeah. and you know but they're really trying to reposition the sport as something that everyone can do um and um it, it's it's a it's a good thing because you know as as covid is showing us that um um you are more susceptible as a society to a pandemic if your population is less healthy um <laughs> as boris johnson has said himself after his um, recent experience in hospital mm. um so it is really important um so good for them um and the final ads we're going to look out is dacia um that car brand uh, this is by publicist poke uh, the new ad is um it's a sort of diy tv spot um which is trying to show the power of innovation in creating advertising uh, during the pandemic which just goes to show you don't need a hollywood budget to bag yourself a blockbuster um so this is quite knowing i guess um they're kind of looking at how people are trying to create things for themselves um does that resonate with you gurgit or is it too meta do you think Oh, I think it's cute. It's nice. Um, and I think, uh, you know, when you step outside of advertising land, um, we need to remember that, you know, um, general public, I don't know if this is true, actually, the general public, are they interested in how ads are being created? I don't know. Uh, I think it's quite nice, you know, it, the, the the woman with the drill bit um, and the guy kind of like blowing <laughs> in that bottle and it's all a little bit, it's all a little bit silly but fun and um, I don't know, uh, you know, the and the voiceover on the spe- um, speakerphone and stuff. It, it's fun. I think it's fun. It, it's it's a um, an ad of these times um, and you, know, you wouldn't have they wouldn't have come up with something like this if we weren't in lockdown doing with our kind of creatives doing all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, I, I quite like it. 
Uh, well, you know, lockdown, I suppose, could be seen as uh, this this spark, this inspiration for a new genre of creativity. But I, I don't know. It's just, uh, you know, uh, I mentioned again that we're recording this podcast from our living rooms, but this whole kind of like democratization of media where you're kind of like seeing behind the curtain about how kind of things are being created nowadays. I don't know. I wonder if it will just take away some of the magic that maybe we used to have, some of that reverence for big TV film productions where it just seems like, oh, wow, how have they done this? And stuff like this. It's kind of like, oh, it's kind of easy and everyone can do it. And anyone, <laughs> oh, can, can, be a, it. <laughs> any, anyone can be a YouTube influencer. I, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm overthinking it. I don't know. Uh, I see where you're coming from, but I don't agree. <laughs> I think but it's, uh, you don't agree. It's <laughs> So we don't we don't always agree on this podcast, which which is good. Um, okay, I'm gonna let you go, Gadget, um, because Thank we've got you. stuff to do. Lots very busy day. Um, please do uh, leave a nice rating for the campaign podcast if you like it on Apple Podcasts or Google, wherever you listen to it. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to our friends at Number Eight Studios for enabling to record this episode remotely, and of course to Campaign's brilliant Ben Londersburg for editing and co-producing the podcast. Uh, you can get all the latest injuries stories and to the UK's latest campaigns on campaignlive.co.uk. But please stay safe wherever you are, listener, and we will catch you next time. Bye-bye.